Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Despite the difficulties of the past week, I think we can look past that to um, events in September, October, and November that demonstrated that our institutions are strong. Uh, the individuals can be removed, myself, the leader of the opposition, the clerk, the sergeant, and life carries on here. Bills are introduced, bills are debated, bills are passed. And that is the expectation the public has. I want to assure people at home that although this is a very difficult time for all of us in the legislature, we will get through this and we are all hopeful that the investigation, in whatever form it takes, is completed as quickly as possible. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Rob, I just walked through the uh, rotunda of the legislature today and the Christmas tree is up. Very peaceful. Very nice. This this place is so different from last week. We the the house is peaceful now, but man, what a session! Oh, that man. was crazy. So you mean there's no one running down the hallway with a with a robe and a tricorn hat <laughs> fleeing from the media and the cameras blockading doors and things? No, it is quite quiet here. It's transitioned big time. But you, you heard John Horgan off the bat there talking about uh, the difficulties we've seen. Uh, over the course of this most this session that just wrapped up of the BC legislature, which, as we talked last week, is just one of the craziest things we've both seen around here with the uh, the clerk of the house, Craig James, the the, speak, the sergeant at arms, Gary Lenz, getting marched out of here um, with a, a mysterious RCMP investigation going on. Where are we at with that now? I mean, is it, that, that story kind of die down for a while as the police investigate, or is it, does it flare up again? Yeah, we're in like? we're in a big uh, pile of limbo on that one because mm-hmm. uh, those two positions, the clerk at least requires a vote from the house uh, to be suspended or brought back, and the MLAs are all gone, so we won't see anything on that until I guess February when uh, the house resumes, or if we hear something from the RCMP or special prosecutors. We do have a big Lamsey meeting coming up. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about that probably next week. Uh, but uh, this is uh, kind of in a bit of a pause limbo mode now. And one of the things we're we're starting to do now uh, is put that aside and realize all the things that we missed yeah. over the last two weeks of this session, running around just covering this uh, rolling mess, as I called it last just, week. Just before we move into that that other stuff, LAMSI stands for the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, which is an all-party committee of the legislature, and they essentially manage the place. Right. They're supposed and, to. Yeah, and they're when supposed they meet. to. Which is very rare. They haven't met for a while, but they've got this meeting coming up later in the week. And um, this scandal or, I, or this event that we've seen with the, the clerk and the, and the sergeant at arms, I was speaking to some people around this place the last couple of days. And they said one of the things that this is throwing for a loop is the budget that they've got to get through for the, the actual B.C. legislature. And you had a really interesting story this week speaking to the auditor general uh, about how this event has kind of overshadowed the budget process and, and previous budgets to this place, which have all been audited, right? What is that about? Like, is that is that the the speculation that 
this is potentially to do with some sort of financial malfeasance around here, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of checks and balances on the books here at the legislature. And now that no one knows what these allegations are, there's a lot of butt covering going on as well. And so you see the Auditor General and a whole bunch of other people who are have been signing off on the books for years now worried that, oh boy, if this is financial, and we don't know if it is or not, but if it is, what does that say about all the audits and checks and balances we had? And so there's there's worry that uh, from the people who have been handling the finances here that maybe something's gone wrong. And you see the Auditor General now saying she is not going to sign off on the legislature's audited financial statement. So she does that for the province every year, uh, but uh, isn't going to do it for the legislature. MLAs on this Lampsy committee haven't even given her a final set of books to audit. They haven't even approved the final financial figures because they're as frightened as everyone else that some money is missing or something has gone wrong there. So the legislature's kind of ground to a halt. And technically, it does have to get audited financial statements. If it doesn't, it violates the law, but it is not penalized for that. So it could just limp on the the seat of democracy, the the root of our government here could just blow all the financial laws and just carry on as if nothing happened until we figure out what's happened in this crisis. It just shows you the, the uncharted waters that we're in on this thing, this extraordinary event that we've seen, which continues to unfold behind the scenes. And I guess we'll find out in the days and weeks ahead, because there, obviously there will be more developments. Uh, but in the meantime, man, oh man, the chattering classes are still talking about with this this stuff. So we continue to keep an eye on that for you. Um, at the end of the session, uh, there is traditionally a news conference by the Premier and also by the Leader of the Opposition, and that was no exception this time around. So John Horgan held his uh, end-of-session uh, availability, and he was asked what his personal highlight was, right? Shall we have a listen to that? Yeah, let's okay. take a look. What is the highlight for me? Ride-sharing, uh, ride-hailing legislation, which again has been characterized as us deliberately trying to stop a transformation in the passenger uh, transportation sector. The people that are saying that had five years to do something about it. And the absurdity of one of the members, the member who created the cavernous hole at ICBC, apparently he was working diligently on legislation, not working diligently on protecting the traveling public at ICBC. Perhaps if he had maybe tabled the legislation and tried to pass it, I'd have more confidence in his position. What we did was we worked with the industry, we worked with the proponents, we worked with communities, and we put forward legislation, we listened to the members of the legislature, we amended the legislation, and then we passed it. That strikes me as a mature, responsible thing for government to do, always mindful of the, the, the traveling public. How can we make it more convenient? How can we make it safer? And how can we protect those who do not choose uh, to embrace ride-hailing? What do you think about that? He says that ride-hailing is, uh, was his personal <laughs> highlight. I was, I was thinking to myself, man, that's your highlight? Like, you got Uber and Lyft and these big companies basically threatening to walk from British Columbia because they were so unhappy with the ride-hailing system that the Horgan government introduced, and yet he considers it uh, the highlight of the session, getting this done. I'm not sure you can be super proud with that legislation. When you look at it, it is the kind of legislation the NDP used to hate, where it's kind of what we, we call a hollow bill. It sets out some rules, and it leaves the real meat to cabinet through regulation. So how do we deal with the geographic borders for taxis or ride-hailing? Right. Cabinet. You know what? Yeah, how are yeah. we gonna how are we gonna figure out the the meat of how this is gonna work, cabinet? And yeah. I guess to the NDP's credit, they've now gone back to this all party crown legislative committee that will try and develop some regulations for it to help it set the the kind of meat. I point out that that cabinet committee or that uh, legislative committee already provided recommendations at the start of ride hailing. Government didn't really listen to them. 
So I think what the government is doing here is giving itself some cover. It has not figured out ride hailing. Its legislation did not figure out how to do ride hailing and protect the taxi industry. So they're going to try and lump in as many MLAs as they can on this committee to give themselves cover for what will be probably a mad scramble in late 2019 to get this thing going. Right, and late 2019 is when the government has said, look, this is when hopefully we're going to be delivering these services that these ride hailing companies like Uber, Lyft, there are other ones, can will be allowed to apply for a license and presumably be licensed to operate. And then British Columbia, Vancouver, and the rest of the BC joins the rest of the developed world, essentially, uh, and gets these ride-hailing services up and running. I'm still very skeptical of the way this is going to unfold because when you talk to Uber, Lyft, these other big companies, they're mad about this uh, framework that the government's brought in place. And, and one of those is because it's a very supply-managed uh, system, very bureaucratic with a lot of regulations. And it's it, they've set something up here in BC that doesn't exist in these other jurisdictions where this, these services operate for for uh, many reasons. But primary among them is the the government is talking about strict operating caps mm-hmm. on the number of ride hailing drivers that would be allowed to go out in the road and pick up passengers. And one of the things that uh, Claire Trevena, the transportation minister, has said is the reason that they they're interested in these caps and limits is they don't want chaos on the road. In other words, they don't want Thousands of people sort of flooding out onto the road as Uber drivers and suddenly causing traffic gridlock. I wrote a column about this the other day in the province newspaper I encourage people to check out. And that was taking a look at other jurisdictions like Toronto, for example, where they have 70,000 ride-hailing drivers, which sounds like an enormous number. And it is. That's a big number. But if you look at how many of these drivers are actually on the road at any given time, the average is around 3,500 out of 70,000. And that's because most of them are part-time. And they also respond to demand. So the drivers are able to look at the app on their phone and see where the demand is if there's lots of uh, people looking for rides. And then they can decide whether or not to work. So if you talk to Uber or Lyft, they will say this is how supply and demand operates without a, without a cap. It just naturally, um, the demand dictates the supply. So that's that's the system they want. They're not getting that in B.C., no. So, do you, I mean, do you think Uber, do you think this is actually going to deliver Uber services or Lyft services next year, or are they going to walk away? Well, when you talk to some people who have analyzed kind of the way Uber operates and Lyft to a certain extent, they'll tell you if they really want to be in a market, they will put up with any manner of government meddling to get in there. So it's possible we still see them anyways. They're not happy with the class of driver's license the government has picked, having to do class four, which is going to be a commercial license, versus class five, which is a regular driver's license. That's not what Uber wanted. We're not sure about the caps because that's supposed to be something that uh, the passenger transportation branch is setting, which is this quasi-independent thing that most people don't even know about. But it's basically going to have rules and how it decides how many ride-hailing licenses, what prices they're allowed to charge. So maybe they could give everybody a license and not bring in caps. Again, we don't know that because that's not even in the legislation. That's the kind of thing they set afterwards. The fear, fear, though, is that that will be a cabinet-appointed committee. So these will be political appointments. It is a cabinet-appointed committee. It is. So it'll be political appointments, you know, maybe kind of patronage appointments or political appointments that will do, expected to do the bidding Mm -hmm. uh, of the Horgan cabinet. And that's where these companies like Uber and Lyft are, are very fearful and suspicious about what's coming here because you've got a, a political party and a government that has been generally hostile to the industry in the past. So even though they're talking about, oh, we're going to get these services finally next fall, there, there's still some concern that maybe we won't get the services. So I guess we continue to 
to monitor it. If I was to to venture in onto the highlight of the session, I would say for the NDP, it's got to be getting the speculation tax and to a lesser extent the employer health tax through. I mean, that was a messy messy tax. When that came out in the February budget, it has been revised three times since then by press release. Uh, it, the revenue numbers attached to it, I have, I can't imagine they're going to be accurate given the way they were revived. The final version of the speculation tax is a pale shadow of its original version. It's, it's down to a much smaller levy with all sorts of exemptions and the Gulf Islands aren't in there. Yeah. I mean, the NDP, if they had introduced the speculation tax that they passed in this session in February in the budget, I don't think people would have lit their hair on fire. But they tried to come in with a big boot and people just were upset about it. And so... It's amazing in, in to watch that tax policy develop and also to, for the NDP to get it passed. They had to change it at the last minute to get the green support to get it to pass. But I think it's a win for Carol James that she she rode this <laughs> messy wave all the way through to get it done. The employer health tax is very similar. They, the NDP's taken a lot of flack, especially from municipalities, for getting uh, health costs downloaded onto them in exchange for eliminating the medical services plan premiums, MSP. But... They're both passed. They are law. The government can proceed with them. And that sort of ends the kind of what I thought was kind of a messy budget in February, but is now fully in place by the end of the year for next year. I think the government's overall pretty happy with the way that the budget has gone and the fight over these taxes. I mean, they certainly took their lumps over it. Taxes are never popular. And the liberals certainly tried to inflict as much political damage on them as they could over those two particular taxes. But I think the the thing the government's got going in their favor is the budget is still balanced. In fact, they've got a large surplus. The BC economy is still, still doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. So they're in pretty good shape that way. And as far as those taxes go, I don't think it's, it's, it's triggered as big a backlash as maybe they had feared or the Liberals hoped. On the speculation tax, it, it typically applies to people who own more than one home, right, mm-hmm. which is a very small percentage of the population. And on the, the health care tax, it applies to employers. So it's not a direct tax on on rank-and-file workers or citizens. So I think it's something that the, the NDP are thinking, you know what, we, we kind of are getting through with this. Uh, yeah. we've, we've, sort of, we've sort of managed to get through the, the, fight, the backlash on this tax. And another interesting talking point on the speculation tax that I suspect you might hear more from the government here going forward, I, I heard from David Eby last week, with all the um, focus on money laundering, uh, in the real estate sector, uh, we saw a, a major high-profile criminal case charges on, a, on an alleged money laundering racket fall apart. Uh, charges were withdrawn. A lot of spe- a lot of anger and uh, frustration about money laundering. David Eby made an interesting point several times. I heard him last week say that one of the ele- one of the features of the speculation tax is that it will allow the government to have greater scrutiny of where money is coming from that's invested into real estate. So he says that the speculation tax can also will help the government crack down on money laundering in real estate. And I, and I got a feeling you might hear him doubling down on that and, and, and emphasizing that more. Because yeah. it's something that people are just so angry about, you know, as they hear more and more about skyrocketing real estate prices, although we've seen a softening in real estate prices. Most people still can't afford to buy a place. Um, the, the, the fentanyl deaths, overdose deaths that we've seen, the money laundering that's been going on in casinos and elsewhere, it's this kind of like a jigsaw puzzle that people have put together and they see this disturbing picture and they get, they're angry and upset about it. And this government, I think, wants to show that they're doing something about it. So. 
David Eby, I mean, you can see his fingerprints on the government's tax policy, but he has got a ton of files on his plate. He is uh, the Mr. Fix-It of the NDP government with all the hard files, uh, money laundering being one. The other uh, that we heard a bit about in the closing days of the legislature was ICBC and its continued yeah. losses. I mean, it's now on track to lose $890 million this year. It lost $1.3 billion last year. We got this update from ICBC. David Eby says basically the dumpster fire is still burning there. Yeah. He's been trying to put it out with a cap on the minor injury claims, with changing the rate structure, all these things that he's he's brought in the last little while. We've got a clip uh, from a chat with him. We'll play this now uh, and then uh, chat about it. This is David Eby talking about whether we're going to see rate hikes coming at ICBC. So if the losses are getting bigger and bigger in this kind of interim period, is ICBC losing more than a billion dollars in its uh, fiscal year? Or do you have any well, sense of yeah, how bad it is? Yeah, it's projected to lose uh, $1.3 uh, billion this year. Um, we're coming up on the uh, second quarter uh, uh, financial statements for ICBC, and then uh, people will have a better idea about where we're going. It's not getting better at ICBC, I can tell you that. Um, and the challenge is that all of these reforms that we have in place don't kick in until April 1st. So um, how, do we, uh, <laughs> how do we keep this ship uh, going until April 1st uh, when we start to see the reforms really start to have their effect? Is it, uh, all these changes, and then there's going to be a rate application by ICBC, I mm-hmm. think, in December. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I can't see a scenario where we don't have rate increases uh, given the finances at ICBC. So what... Do you have any sense of uh, what an acceptable rate increase from ICBC would be, given what you just said, that it's worsening yep. in this interim period, that it'll take a while for the changes to keep the ship from sinking? Like, what is a what can people expect when, when we start talking about that next month? Um, well, the, the ultimate goal that I'd like to be at is, uh, is uh, rates uh, increases at inflation or lower. That's, that's where we're trying to get to. And for uh, good drivers that they're actually seeing no increase um, or, uh, or slight decreases uh, in their rates. Um, and so those are the goals that we're aiming for. Uh, realistically, yes, there will be rate increases, um, uh, even just from the perspective of, uh, of where the economy is going and, and costs going up, uh, inflation and so on. But beyond that, ICBC has continuing losses. So there will be rate increases the, uh, from the beginning. Uh, we've been trying to avoid that single-year uh, 30%, 40% increase to close the gap. And uh, so, obviously, that's a very low bar. We've cleared that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the work is still going on about the rate application hearing in December. So, David Eby there saying, look, we could have got 30 to 40% increases on rates in the worst-case scenario. So, be happy you don't get that because you are going to see rate increases when ICBC applies to the Utilities Commission in December Later this month, I, the question I have, Smitty, is it going to be double-digit rate increases <laughs> or not? Because it's clear that the financial picture is so bad there, we're going to have to pay more in rates. I think you better hang on to your wallets because, you know, EB famously called it the financial dumpster fire. It's almost like they've thrown a few more tires and, and doused some gasoline on there because the fire is still burning. So you got ICBC is still losing over $3 million a day even after all these uh, measures the government's already taken. So the financial bleeding is still going on there. And by the end of the calendar year, so over the next few weeks, ICBC uh, is required to apply for a rate hike through the uh, BC Utilities Commission. So we will find out in the next few weeks how big the rate hike is going to be. And I anticipate it 
a lot of people are going to, you know, the government has already said, look, we're trying to keep a lid on these massive, we don't want massive, shocking, huge rate increases. So we're trying to keep a lid on it. So I don't think you're going to see double digit increases, but uh, we'll see what it's going to be. Remember when EB um, earlier had brought out the new rate structure for ICBC and he mm-hmm. said, we want to do this, make make this more fair for people so that if you are quote unquote a good driver and you got no accidents, you got no speeding tickets, you got no distracted driving tickets. Well, you are a good, safe driver. You deserve a break on your insurance, right? And the bad drivers out there, the ones that are causing the accidents or talking on their cell phones behind the wheel, they should pay more. And this was a really effective message for EB because everybody would agree with that. You know, everyone say, yeah, that's absolutely right. You had to read the fine print to that that uh, announcement because you remember that day he did a news conference. He said, well, you know, under a new rate structure, some people will pay $50 less and mm-hmm. other people will pay like $100 less in their insurance. And you think like, wow, I'm going to save 100 bucks on my insurance. Actually, what he means is you would pay $100 less than you otherwise would have if we hadn't started putting the dumpster fire out and cleaning up the system. So everyone will pay more. Mm-hmm. It's just that some people will pay less more. <laughs> so everyone is going to have to pay more. So if you get like a 5% or let's say a 6% rate hike in your ICVC and you're a good driver, then I guess you're supposed to be happy that you weren't getting whacked with a 10% rate hike, I guess, is what he's saying. I still think the hardest days for the New Democrats are ahead of them on ICBC because a lot of the rate changes they made, little tiny things that are really going to piss people off. So if you have a teenage kid who wants to ride in your car or drive your vehicle when learning, if you don't list them uh, or pay a special fee, your insurance rate's going to go up no matter what. You're going to get hit with a penalty. There's all sorts of the number of quote-unquote free crashes you can get before your rates increase. Those are changing. Those things, when people finally figure them out next year, it's going to tick them off. And I think the NDP is going to get an earful on it. The other thing I talked to David Eby about is this idea of uh, putting a little box in your vehicle it's called telemetrics Yes, uh, that will monitor how fast you brake, how fast you accelerate, how fast you turn. Uh, there's a pilot program ICBC just launched in the last week, 7,000 young drivers. If you sign up to put this box in your vehicle, you can get a brake on your insurance. And what they really want to do here is they want to expand on what you were talking about, Smitty, what's a good driver and what's a bad yeah. driver. We yeah. all think we're good drivers. Right. But if you have a box in your vehicle showing that you <clears throat> brake really hard yeah. and you take off with burning rubber at every intersection, um, then ICBC can collect data to prove that you aren't and it will yeah. adjust your rates up. And I think that's the future of ICBC is volunteering to have a box in your vehicle that measures whether you're a good driver, disables your cell phone, you get a yep. lower insurance rate, yeah. or you you pay much higher to not show ICBC how crummy a driver you actually are. I think because the dumpster fire is still burning, that's the future of ICBC is much stricter monitoring of how you drive and much higher rates. It's really interesting technology that has been adopted in other jurisdictions. And I, I think it's really it's really uh, intriguing that the government is, is doing this pilot project on it. And I, I think a lot of people out there might say, bring it on. Sure. I mean, if I'm a safe driver or if I've got, you know, if I trust my kid as a safe driver... <laughs> Sure, put one of these uh, put one of these gizmos in my car, and if, if, especially if it's going to mean uh, lower insurance rates for me. Maybe it means more information for parents too. If you can find out how uh, you, you know how your kid is driving, I'm not sure. There may be some privacy yeah. um, considerations on this kind of technology, but there, that's a big pilot project. Seven thousand—that's a lot of drivers. 
and the government is saying, uh, ICBC is saying, like, we'll see, we're going to see how this goes. Maybe, it be, maybe we expand it even more in the future. The other, the other thing that uh, we heard from this week, the other person we talked to was Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Right. And he had uh, this kind of year-end uh, session and press conference with us. And let's take a listen to what he had to say. He's talking both about the speaker scandal, the speaker clerk uh, sergeant at arms scandal, but also the issue of ride hailing and what he thinks generally of uh, the session and the NDP government. And this is uh, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. The overview is that we currently have a very serious controversy about the events of the last week. Uh, our view is that we have done what we can for accountability in the House. and We basically exhausted our channels and we're very much reliant on the media to follow up on the stories that have evolved. On the broader picture, uh, ride-hailing has been brought in a very uh, ineffective and cumbersome way that probably won't result in anybody getting into a ride-hailing vehicle for at least two years. So we've made it known that we think this is a completely failed proposition at this point, and we have a better plan that could be in place by Valentine's Day. And more broadly, our concern is that the NDP don't seem to be overly concerned about doing things that help British Columbians to develop the opportunities to get ahead, to build the prosperity that we need, and to make sure that young people have the chances to, to prosper in our society. We have seen basically nothing in that regard from this government this year. So that's uh, Andrew Wilkinson's take on the session. And Ride Ailing in particular, Smitty, he's saying, A, this is an unworkable bit of government legislation. It's going to take at least two years. And he's pointing out the Liberals had their own private member's bill to have ride hailing in place by Valentine's Day. Yeah. Did not pass, obviously, but uh, that was their kind of wedge issue on ride hailing. I, I got to admit, anytime I hear Wilkinson or any other Liberal talking about ride hailing and demanding that it be accomplished quicker i i do got to suppress that gag reflex because i do i do find myself reaching for the old barf bag because man these guys how long have we been talking about this issue now like, like six years yeah five six years they were in power through all of it except for the last year of course the ndp in power they could have brought this in you know they could have delivered these services to to the people of bc they caved into the taxi industry just as bad as the NDP. The, the, both parties have been very obedient to this lobby. Do you, do you remember right before the election, Peter Fassbender and Todd Stone announced that they have legislation ready yeah. on ride hailing? You can't see it. We're not going to introduce it, but it's all done, and it's great, yeah. and they call us into their office. They talk to us about it, and then we go out in the campaign trail, and Fassbender says, hang on a second, because he's getting an earful from the taxi. The taxi bucket. business Hang on mad, a second. Yeah. We, we, this isn't a finalized plan. We can yeah. always change it. You, you don't <laughs> like this plan? We can change it. It's yeah. no, so when the liberals <laughs> came out this, this past couple of weeks and said, here's our original plan on ride hailing, the NDP rightly scoffed at that and said, well, A, well, it wasn't a real plan in the first place, and B, you were going to change it because no one liked it. Well, I remember talking Stone back when he was the transportation minister in the previous government and Uber first arrived in BC and started they actually did briefly start to operate yeah. they started operating like a limo service as they were sort of testing the waters if they could start operating and the the lib, the then liberal government supported by the NDP both of them furious about this uh demanding that Uber's immediately cease and desist and stop operating Todd Stone, in particular, was saying, we will hire undercover passengers to go out there and pretend to be Uber passengers, <laughs> and we will catch these guys, and we will find them. So back then, it was all about, we'll hunt you down like a dog if you even dare to operate. 
And now they're pointing a finger at the NDP saying like, oh, how come you haven't delivered these services more quickly? So like I say, I, I, f- I do find it a little, a little bit well, disgusting, spe- the hypocrisy speak- of it. Speaking of hard to listen to, I guess, uh, here is, <laughs> here is uh, Andrew Wilkinson's comments on ICBC, uh, including a question from our colleague Vaughn Palmer. You might be able to hear in this clip saying, isn't basically the problem at ICBC uh, your fault, uh, the Liberal Party's fault for letting it go? So let's, <clears throat> let's listen to that. One of the biggest clouds in that financial report is the continuing financial crisis at the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia. Did your government make a terrible mistake in letting that just drift to the point where it's in such a mess now? Our concern is that ICBC is now a very dated model. We're seeing difficult financial figures coming out now under the NDP. And there's the opportunity there to open it up to other ways of doing insurance. We've already said that the taxi industry would benefit from a broader array of insurance products and why not let the private sector insurers in to deal with the taxi industry to see if they can get a more flexible deal and not have a $37,000 bill the first day of the year they turn on their taxi. Are you calling for full privatization of ICBC? How do you think that would look? ICBC is now a 45-year-old state-run monopoly and we need to have a whole bunch of new looks at this. Is there room to move it to a mutual insurance corporation or a co-op? Is there room for appropriate levels of competition? We need to have a root and branch overhaul of ICBC using the best practices from all around North America. What do you make of that? Well, so (laughs) it it seems like the liberals are saying we should privatize ICBC, but not quite privatize it. Let's do a, quote, root and branch overhaul, which Mm. I'm not entirely sure what that means. But they're flirting at least with this idea of let's scrap ICBC and go completely private. Yeah. They haven't quite got there, but I don't know. Do you think that's a good position for them? Well, privatizing auto insurance is something that's been kicked around in BC for a long time, and it's, it's turned out to be kind of a third rail of BC politics in a way because it's kind of like if you if you touch it or you go there, you end up kind of getting burned somehow. Um, the Liberals back in the uh, uh, in many moons ago when they were in power in an earlier iteration of government when Gordon Campbell was the premier talked about privatizing auto insurance and they just they backed right down after a public backlash. Um, so this is a this is one that's been talked of, talked about a lot before, uh, and no government has followed through on it. You would ne- you would never certainly never see an NDP government privatize auto insurance. Not when you've got something like what is it twelve thousand unionized workers over there. They're not going to privatize. The only party that would privatize auto insurance would be the Liberal Party. Um, but when Andrew Wilkinson says, says we're going to do a root and branch overhaul, I'm not sure if he's talking about a little trim or if he's going to chop the whole tree down. I don't know what he's talking about. No, he, I think he's I think he's testing it. I think he's testing public reaction. Uh, if there's a political appetite out there to privatize ICBC, is it a vote getter? If people are mad about uh, their insurance then maybe maybe the liberals do tread into those waters but it, it's been a tricky one in the past yeah they're trying to determine much like the speculation tax and ride hailing if uh, icbc can be a, an issue they score votes on right. i'm not sure yeah that there is a private um insurance sector which is quite vocal now saying with all of its studies oh you could get much cheaper insurance and here's, here's what we could do uh but uh uh, you're right. As long as NDP's in power, that's never going to happen. No. And uh, and it's not clear that that would be a very big election issue when and if we have an election anyways. I think people might still be focused on housing and child care and some of the things the NDP yeah. are actually making progress on rather than ICBC. But it's going to be a tough year for the NDP on ICBC yeah. for all the things we already spoke about. And I guess this will be the liberal talking point is, oh, you, you have to pay more. Well, you know, we would do a structural review of ICBC and make sure that rates don't go up. What, just just to finalize, uh, just a final thought in the session. See what you think of this. Um, I thought the Liberals had a pretty good session, or they seemed to end on a bit of a stronger note. 
Uh, I think at the start of the session, the Liberals were still in that kind of, you know, multi-stage mourning process out of this. Uh, there's a lot of them, I think, still can't believe they lost the last election. They're very frustrated they're in opposition. I don't think I don't think Wilkinson had been that di- has been that dynamic of an opposition leader. We hadn't seen any really uh, dynamic, tough opposition critics begin to really uh, step up and 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 sort of get more public attention. But I thought toward the end of that session, they 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 felt like they had scored some hits on the NDP and had a bit more of a spring in their step. I think they kind of mishandled this whole speaker controversy and the suspension of the uh, the clerk and the sergeant at arms. They were kind of flip-flopping around on that a little bit. But overall, I thought they did I did, they did a little better. What, they do you, had, what do you think? They had some meat to dig into in the session. I yeah. mean, we had um, the speculation tax. We had the second referendum bill. So the one that will, if proportional representation passes, we'll have another referendum in two elections. The Liberals spent a ton of time pointing out all the problems with the referendum process. They scored a lot of points. I think they were... Uh, they got a lot of momentum from the TV debate between John Horgan and Andrew Wilkinson. Yeah, I thought he did well. Wilkinson he, did, well, did well there, I thought. He did what he wanted to, which was no. sow the seeds of confusion there, and they came no. out with a lot of momentum from that. There was a bunch of other bills. It was 21 NDP bills in this session, and there was a lot of room for the Liberals to maneuver and find issues, and it seems like they've shuffled their critic bench a little bit. They have a much shorter group of front bench critics who actually speak and they're quite strong and so they, I, I agree better. they've they found their footing the question is what happens in the PR referendum results where are we early next year what's the next budget look like where are the greens and uh, it could be a lot less to do with the liberals uh, than other factors if we plunge ourselves into a new election okay we'll probably cover all that off in future podcasts <laughs> <laughs> that's why you need to subscribe to this yes. podcast on your apple or we've uh, tweeted out i think on uh, there's also an rss feed you can subscribe using android and, and various other devices as well okay well we'll see you in the next one yeah.